Blog Talk Radio. Asimath Murphy, a guest host on Sylvia Global Media Network, and I'm here today. We are doing our third of uh, our third segment of three with Epilepsy Now, and I'm talking today with Susan Upchurch. And Susan is a representative and advocate for those with epilepsy from the Epilepsy Foundation of San Diego. Susan, it's great to have you back. Well, thank you, Asenath. I, too, am looking forward to a little bit more discussion today about uh, epilepsy and its effects on people's lives and so on. Now, I know the last couple weeks we've covered some, or the last couple segments, I should say, we've covered some great information as far as what seizures are and um, and just kind of how it can affect life and, and uh, just awareness of what it is, what it looks like. Um, and one of the things I was thinking about that I would love to hear you talk about today is um, I know that growing up I saw a lot of people who um, maybe had seizures, but it wasn't a constant thing in their life. They didn't have seizures regularly. And I remember finding out from a friend one day, I had no clue she had seizures, and it came up for some reason. And she said, but I don't tell anyone. I don't want anyone to know, so don't say anything. And then on the other hand, my family kind of always taught me, like, hey, it's okay, it's part of who you are, make sure that people around you know. So, and I've had people tell me, you know, sometimes when I talk about it, like, hey, you shouldn't tell people that. Um, So I was just curious, I know that's one of the questions that you probably get asked a lot as far as who do you tell, when do you tell, um, when is it important to let your employer or your DMV know? Um, just kind of, is there anything you can share on that? Well, you're, you're sure right that it's a big subject, and it's a very important issue for everybody with epilepsy, um, not only the person, his or herself with epilepsy, but anyone in their lives, including parents and uh, and friends and so on. In fact, uh, it's interesting, Osmus, that you say that, you just made such a good comparison between a family um, that starts a young person off with uh, a, a very a big willingness, a, a willingness to disclose, and on the one hand, and on the other hand, sort of a fearful attitude of not disclosing. And those um, trajectories in those two young people's lives uh, are, can be very different. Um, in your case, you've become much more comfortable probably with learning about it and um, extending your knowledge about it to your to people that are in your life. So it's it's a it's a much more positive trajectory over time. Whereas, unfortunately, perhaps your classmate way back then is still dealing many years later with that um, that effect of having it be hidden. You know, because hidden things, uh, by their very nature, are scary things, and uh, so so the point is that with young people uh, starting out with uh, trying to get a hold on the importance and the place of epilepsy in their lives, 
uh, a good beginning from uh, knowledgeable family members is extremely valuable. But our discussion probably has more to do at this point with already are in their own world, they have their own contacts and so on. So I do think it's important for us to discuss that a little bit. Uh, and certainly you're right that I get that asked a lot. When do I tell people and how do I do that? Uh, you know, last couple times in our series, we've talked a lot about, as you said, trying to bring some awareness and knowledge, really, of what epilepsy and seizures are. And by doing that, we're, we're, our, our listeners are probably people with epilepsy themselves, as well as people who know others with epilepsy. So the starting point, of course, in either case, is knowledge. But knowledge, unfortunately, is never quite enough with most humans. It's, it's, it's a gradual degree of changing not only the, the knowledge base, but then the attitude, uh, the sort of the emotional response, the perceptions uh, that we carry with us. Uh, and then finally, uh, the behavioral changes would have to take effect. So, so starting with the knowledge uh, of one's own case, you know, what, what types of seizures uh, any one person has, uh, and then secondarily, what the attitude toward one's own uh, situation is, those will be reflected in how one discloses to others. Uh, it's pretty amazing that, uh, as we've all heard that, that surprising statistic that most uh, communication is nonverbal. Uh, so we have to work on the whole thing, not only the words that we use when telling other people about uh, our epilepsy and so on, but uh, even the indication of our attitude toward that will be picked up by others. So uh, I think to wrap all that up, it's it's really developing a not only a knowledge base about a one's own uh, epilepsy, but secondarily uh, it, it, trying to have a relationship with one's own epilepsy, knowing is it a fear-based relationship or is it uh, uh, an open-ended trying to learn more and more, uh, you know, a willingness to uh, know about it ourselves and bring other people into that with with us. Uh, it's, it's not an easy answer, and it takes a lot of self-knowledge for a person to really get to the point where they would truly just be comfortable, where it's just one other aspect about, about a person, not the leading uh, subject. Right. Perhaps a good way to, to, to uh, develop the subject a little bit more is to think in terms of what, what if I'm the person with epilepsy who is uh, pondering disclosure uh, to friends or to uh, distant family members who may not have seen me for a while or something of that nature, I want to ask myself, what is it I want from that person? You know, do I want acceptance? Do I want them to... Um, rush to my aid if I need it. You know, a good question to ask when you, one's pondering disclosure, um, well, first of all, who's the audience? And then second of all, what do I want from that audience? You know, what do I want from that person uh, when I'm trying to disclose something about me, in this case, epilepsy? So that is, again, 
the responsibility is with uh, me, the discloser, to determine not only what I'm trying to disclose, but why. You know, what do I want from this? So that that takes a little bit of um, pondering on one's own, but I think it will direct the disclosure in a much more positive way. Uh, I think that, you brought up something that, interesting. I mean, right now, you know, I think disclosure, and I tend to think more about, um, you know, kind of the official places, employment, um, the DMV, especially if it's something, you know, that came up suddenly or something where, like, with my friends, it's um, it's not very evident. It's not something you often experience. But you also mentioned disclosure with friends. Um and, you know, going into the holidays, I know um, a lot of people are seeing friends and family they haven't seen in a while. So, I mean, Good you know, how do you handle that if it's something new, um, maybe for those that are, you know, adults uh, who just suddenly had an, an episode recently and were maybe diagnosed mm-hmm. in the last year? Uh, is it necessary to, you know, tell all of the family or kind of do you have any suggestions on how to handle that and how to bring that up where it's, you know, not awkward or is it necessary? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it, as you're so indicating by just the way you phrased the question, Asana, it's so individual, isn't it? Because in some, for some people, their own uh, comfort level will be, I really want others, especially family members, to know. Uh, and there again, there's some self-knowledge necessary. Why would that be? Is it because if a seizure occurs, you don't want to have it be uh, an emergency and everybody is running around afraid and not knowing what to do? So sometimes it's literally just a very pragmatic uh, solution to the what if. Remember, with epilepsy, we have the unpredictability factor uh, that's there. So it might just ease the mind of the individual uh, thinking about disclosure uh, to to rule out the surprise effect of everybody seeing a seizure and not knowing what to do and so on. Now, as you're indicating, are there always times that um, that one must disclose among family? No. Uh, if there really is very good seizure control with medication, which is the case in probably um, a little less than half of the cases of epilepsy are extremely well controlled by epilepsy. But if a person happens to be fortunate enough to be in that percentage, then there may be little need or, or desire to disclose uh, to people that one might see uh, other than not see except at the holidays. So you're right. It's a it's an individual decision, and I think that preparation is everything because that way if one decides to disclose, one would already have the language and, you know, the, the calmness to deliver that message in a, a, a succinct manner and a calm manner, really. Uh, because remember, the delivery, the presentation, that's going to be half the battle in terms of uh, how other people receive the message. And how does that factor in, um, because you're talking about the unpredictability of it, how does that factor in if, say, someone's traveling on their own? Maybe they're, you know, traveling home from college. Um, Mm -hmm. Is, you know... Mm -hmm. 
do you need to let anyone know? I mean, I know for me there were times, you know, even just going to a new church for the first time um, when I was younger, and it was something I regularly experienced. And I remember one time, I was new, nobody knew, nobody knew middle of worship, dropped to the floor, and uh, kind of freaked everyone out. And it wasn't like there was anyone I knew there who could say anything. And I can only imagine it's not something I ever had to face coming home from college um, because by then it was pretty under control for me. But I can only imagine coming home from college if you're on a flight and just kind of all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. you know, middle of the airport or something. like. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's interesting that there are actually um, federal laws in place to to protect people um, from, say, just out-and-out discrimination, there really are sort of two laws that that, uh, play into this discussion, and um, one of them is uh, what probably most people know about is the Americans with Disabilities Act, and uh, there really are two major uh, parts of that that concern us in our conversation, and one of them does have to do with public accommodations. It's actually called, it's the Title III of the ADA, as it's called, Americans with Disabilities Act. The public accommodations uh, part of that law would cover uh, things like airports and uh, subway stations and train stations, you know, anything that's um, a public accommodation, including transportation. Now, I mentioned that there were two laws that take effect if we're talking about uh, air travel because actually inside the airplane, the ADA does not apply. It it applies to all the surrounding things, the restaurants and parking lots and airports and so on. But inside the plane, there's another federal law. It's actually um, passed a little earlier than ADA. It's called the Air Carrier Access Act. And uh, that uh, that pertains to the, the pilot's right, legal right, actually, to detain someone uh, who would have a medical condition that that would have a chance of stopping the flight. In other words, if, if a person has a medical condition that they're going to need some kind of extraordinary medical assistance during the flight, uh, where the pilot is uh, wondering if he'd have to stop the flight, land someplace else before the planned destination, then then that pilot can require actually a medical certification from a physician, um, essentially stating that no, that isn't the case and that this individual can um, be safe during the the full flight. Now, that is so unusual that that would pertain to someone with epilepsy. Uh, I mean, extremely unusual. Um, so, So the main idea with someone planning to do air travel and you're so right that this is the time of year when there's a lot of that. Uh, I think the best tips are are really very simple. One, it's, it's so much better to wear some kind of a medical ID bracelet that would state epilepsy on there so that if a seizure did occur, it wouldn't be mistaken for um, a, a heart attack or something that would, would require immediate attention and probably would require the um, cessation of that flight. So wearing just a simple medical ID bracelet that shows epilepsy on there would be um, a real good idea. The other thing is, as we've talked about in in previous conversations, um, people who have epilepsy are going to be taking a daily medication. So on a flight, it would be um, 
really required that the person carry their medication in the original container and in a separate clear plastic bag. So that that should be with them, not packed away somewhere. They should carry with them their medication in the original container but in a a little um, clear plastic bag. So those two things really should be addressed when doing air travel today. Um, If a person really has quite uncontrolled seizures, I know that some of my clients feel more comfortable alerting uh, the airlines when they actually uh, either set the reservation or essentially within 24 hours of the flight uh, just so that everything can be eased. Um, The reason I'm putting it that way is if they have, say, their seizure type is complex partial seizures and they're not well controlled, it would be something good to alert say, the the workers off the airplane, on the airplane, to know uh, just basic seizure first aid, you know, and what mostly what not to do. Uh, So if the person is traveling alone and can't depend on uh, a companion to do that explanation, they might want to do a little bit of uh, uh, explanation before getting on. But it is not required unless, again, they would need some sort of medical assistance that could possibly end the flight. So does mm-hmm. that does is that um, kind of clear? Uh, I know I just had to deliver a lot of facts quickly, and that <laughs> it, it can be a little confusing. You know, there's one thing that one of my uh, uh, email uh, listeners that from our previous show had asked me about uh, what about taking a companion dog, a, a, a seizure recognition dog, on a plane. And uh, that, again, is definitely allowed under both the laws, the ADA and the uh, Air Carrier Access Act. Uh, again, it, it, that the only thing that one has to be prepared to answer is, surprisingly enough, that airlines are allowed to ask, what task is this dog supposed to do? Uh, so that everybody is alerted to what the dog might do in case a seizure uh, occurred during flight. Um, so there just are some of those uh, preparations to do, especially the the medical ID and the medication container. Those two are, are the most important things to hear, I think, from that. You know, it's funny. I have to admit, I had forgotten about the bracelets. I used to wear one when I was younger, and um, and I remember when they first told me to wear one, I thought of the ones that look like dog tags, and I was like, I really don't want to wear that. No, thanks. Yeah. But I found that at, um, well, then it was Save On Out, CVS, and, and Long's and some of the drugstores. They actually had some that looked like really cute little gold bracelets, and it looked oh, kind yeah. of decorative, and it was so subtle that I remember it. sometimes there were people who didn't notice until it was like, you know, kind of sitting there for a while, and they'd be like, oh, what's that? It has a little symbol on it. And I remember I liked it because it wasn't like people saw it immediately and went, oh, she's got something, you know, I got to look at. But it was noticeable Mm -hmm. enough that I knew if there was ever an emergency and people were looking for it, they'd find it. Yes, it's it's such a good idea. I I, I do support uh, my clients wearing some kind of a medical ID, and it's become a a whole new market to offer bracelets that uh, medical ID bracelets that are really nice. They look so pretty, and 
And there are some excellent websites, actually, that offer those, and they're very affordable, and there are a lot of different choices. Um, but I think with the, in the traveling uh, circumstances, if it's going to be a pretty bracelet that might not be recognized as <laughs> medical ID, then it's a good idea just to alert um, somebody uh, there once, uh, once boarded on the airplane uh, that you do have that. Uh, that you're wearing that. But, yes, you're right. In today's world, you can get things that are a lot prettier than in the old days where they really uh, they were not pretty at all. Uh, so that's a good idea. You know, while we're talking about the, the federal law, um, well, we, we covered uh, this, this Air Carrier Access Act, but a far broader um, law is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And if we could sort of pick back up on our subject of disclosure, uh, the, the ADA uh, has lots to say about disclosure when uh, trying to enter or having entered the, uh, the workforce, uh, because the law does protect someone. It's, this is Title I, again, of ADA, the employment issues. The whole idea of that law is to try to sort of level the playing field of those who have a disability, in this case epilepsy, which is covered under ADA, uh, against the discrimination uh, that wouldn't be based on their uh, their ability to perform a particular job, but would just be, um, unfortunately, a still uh, a discrimination that's uh, about somebody who would be not having any idea about what epilepsy means. If in the old days before the ADA, uh, there could just be uh, a refusal to hire or even a firing uh, for no reason that is um, that is identifiable as now legal discrimination. But since the mid 90s, that has not been the case, and uh, I have found uh, since uh, since that law took place uh, became enacted that. Employers are very willing to learn. They just uh, they just sometimes don't know, and so they don't know sometimes either the the law and its applications to epilepsy, or how to accommodate for someone who has epilepsy and can perform the essential functions of the position, as the law states. Uh, but they need a reasonable accommodation to that. Uh, for instance, if someone always has their their seizures uh, fairly early morning, and um, but on the day that they have that seizure, it's not going to happen that they can get themselves uh, ready for work uh, at the usual expected time that they're supposed to report to work um, and, and get there on time. So a reasonable accommodation might be that on those days, they might have to just call in and say, "I'm coming, but it's going to be uh, I'm going to be a few hours late." You know, that would be a reasonable accommodation to um, a medical condition of uh, epilepsy. So there's there's really lots to know about uh, how one is covered by that law, uh, but re- but since the law is only a piece of paper until people use it, it really becomes the responsibility of all of us to know. Um, how to use it, what the what the law states, and um, how how to coordinate that with with a desire to be in in the workforce. Do you right. have you ever had to use that your, yourself in 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 any part of your life, Asnes? Um, As far as 
having either public uh, yeah either public accommodations or employment issues um i did run into that with school uh in my case we actually didn't i started struggling with school um probably about sixth grade and over time it just became a bigger and bigger issue um it was noticeable because my grades suddenly just plummeted and mm-hmm. we didn't make the connection until much later that it was connected to the medication I was on. Um, right before sixth grade, I had a new doctor who had changed my medication and that it was related to the epilepsy itself. It actually wasn't until we went to a uh, family camp for the Epilepsy Foundation, and it was something that came up in parents' mm-hmm. workshops that my parents started going, Maybe she's not just being lazy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I had gone from managing everything to suddenly um, just struggling with classes that I, you know, subjects I was great in, and all of a sudden my grades were dropping to D's um, yeah. by high school, even oh. F. And uh, and a lot of the teachers were just like, she's never getting her homework in. She knows the material, but she's not getting the work in. And I just, I couldn't keep up with it. So I remember the challenge I ran into was talking with the, um, with the school and saying, what kind of accommodations can we make? And they ran. Exactly. A, yeah, and they ran a test and said, well, her scores are too high. She doesn't qualify for what they call an IEP. Mm-hmm. And. So we were told to ask for, I guess it's called a 504. Um, yes, a 504. That actually comes from a, 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 another law that was passed before, long before ADA. Um, well, I'm glad that somebody thought to ask for that. And it, did you then um, establish some accommodations that made this a, a much more doable thing for you to be in school? It helped a little bit, but I know um, it was still a challenge because my school didn't know how to handle it. The biggest problem was not being able to keep up with the work. And they said, you know, even in math, they were like, well, can she maybe do half the amount of problems? They were like, well, no, because that's how you learn is repetition. And so the one accommodation they came up with was, okay, well, if if it's about keeping up, then we'll extend the deadlines. She can turn work in late without penalty, which okay. was great and helpful, except that when it came to my senior year, getting at the end of the year, I was short three essays. And I remember my teacher went to them, and, and he came up to me and said, I tried to talk to them. I said, you know, it's a matter of three essays, and she'll pass. Um, we've always given her an extension. Can't we just let her walk, give her that six-week extension? I've seen the work. I know she's making progress. And they said, you know, no, I'm sorry. It's not done. She's not going to walk. She's not going to graduate. And I had to go to a summer class. And uh, and that was always kind of a sore spot for me because it was like, well, what could we have done different? And also they didn't let us take summer school ahead of time. I, I usually did really well with summer school, but um, at my school you could only take a summer school class, <clears throat> excuse me, a summer school class if you had either failed or were in an honors oh. program where you oh, were not going to to your schedule the next year. Yeah. Isn't it? It's really incredible just trying to mesh the, the needs of the system, in this case the school system, uh, or uh, or the employment uh, world in in other cases with what the needs of the individual are i mean it certainly shouldn't be an adversarial relationship should it um but the the it, 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 in your case it it did have repercussions because it delayed your graduation and so on and 
um, was just a, a very unfortunate thing to do uh, on the part of the school, but that's unfortunately what they decided. Uh, with the world of employment that uh, that we're in today, uh, essentially because of ADA issues, uh, having really been learned better not only by the people that are covered, people with disabilities, but by uh, employers trying to come up with uh, accommodations. Uh, a good way to think of it is that the, the real expert on the accommodation to the disability is the individual with the medical condition, whereas the expert for the, uh, what, the, what the job requires is the employer. And that's uh, the relationship that needs to be strong enough to come up with solutions. And, and as I say, I've found over the years that most employers are willing spirits about this. They often want a, a quick uh, in-service staff training involving seizure recognition and first aid um, and sometimes a little bit of mediation on my part of uh, trying to mesh that uh, desire for the employer to be able to figure out a way to keep a good employee uh, because they certainly don't want to have to go through all the, the hiring process again for the next person. So, uh, right. again, the good news is most most are willing to work things out, uh, but it's uh, it, it takes knowledge that, that, the, that there is such a law in place in order to use it. Yeah. I know where so um, I... I'm sorry, I was going to say, it's so funny, we talk and the time just goes so fast, and we're coming up on the end of the show here. Oh. Um, um, but yeah, I was just wondering, is there, um, you know, any final notes you'd like to leave us with as far as, I don't know, um, where we can go if we need more information, if someone has questions on how to advocate either for their student or for themselves? Um, is there any final words you want to leave us with? Yes, thank you, Asmith. And you're right, it does speed by when we're talking. Um, yes, I do want to go ahead and remind people, again, of my email address because uh, I'm so willing to uh, help guide people through the process or just the, the knowledge of what to ask for sometimes, whether it's, uh, like you said, 504 or IEP for the school-age people or if it's ADA issues for adults. Um, remember, that's both for public accommodation or employment. Uh, my email address directly is susan, S-U-S-A-N, at epilepsysandiego.org. So it's susan at epilepsysandiego.org. And I, I certainly welcome any inquiries. Uh, and we ha I have been getting quite a few inquiries uh, as a result of our talks. Wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that, and I'm glad to hear that people are becoming more aware and being able to get in touch with you um, to get more information on that. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, have some great holidays, and I hope that we get to talk to you again soon. Good. Well, thank you so much again for this forum. I, I really hope that it's helped a few people out there learn a little bit more, and I've so enjoyed it myself. Thank you, Asanas.